I V M. What connects the American national anthem with battles fought in Mysore? And did Mysore have a secret weapon on its side against the British? What was military innovation like in South India on the eve of the Industrial Revolution? Welcome to the latest episode of the Pragati Podcast, where we'll talk about all this and more. The Pragati Podcast is a weekly show on economics, public policy, and international relations. Uh, we are your hosts, Pavan Srinath and Hamsini Hariharan. Today, we'll be talking about Mysore rockets and this moment in time in Indian history that's really interesting. This is a story of grit and ingenuity, and uh, talking about this today is our guest Ram Ganesh Kamatham. Uh, Ram is a playwright. He's a student of uh, strategic studies, of anthropology, maybe a little sociology. Uh, he even calls himself a Marxian sometimes, not <laughs> Marxist, mind you. And he is also most recently a research fellow at the Takshashila Institution. Hi, Ram. Welcome to the show. Hi, Pawan. Nice to be here. So, when you think of Mysore, you think of Mysore silk, uh, Mysore sandalwood, the Mysore dasara. You don't really think about Mysore rockets. What are the Mysore rockets all about? Well, that's that's a fun question. Uh, we don't often think of the Mysore rockets because, in our imagination, they've sort of been marginalized. We don't really pay attention to them, but they're a really, really interesting part of Indian history. Uh, if you see your DRDO rocket launches, you see your missile launches, and even your ISRO space missions, I mean, that's the big spectacle of the state, you know, showing its its ability to, you know, carry out these missions. But there's a very, very small, really wonderful historical antecedent for all of that. And that actually happens in Mysore with Tipu Sultan, Hyder Ali, and the British, and the use of rockets in a second Anglo-Mysore war. Uh, and so all of modern rocketry... Uh, suddenly comes back to life at that particular moment. Okay, so give us some context. What exactly is happening in the scene when these rockets And, and what period of time is this? Okay, so if you look at, as a line, uh, you can trace the origins of rockets all the way back to, you know, maybe 10th or 11th century China. But we're not going all the way back there. We're looking at the period between 1780 and 1784. So we have uh, Hyder Ali, who is a very, very powerful, uh, at the time, what is called a Dalvi, like a local chieftain. He, was, he would be like a chief minister. And he is a very, very talented general who's, uh, who's posing a really, really big threat to the British who had designs in the subcontinent. He also had his son, Tipu Sultan, which I'm sure many of you would know. Uh, and both of these, uh, this father and son combination were giving the British a real run for their money in the south. Uh, the South at that time was uh, fragmented, you know. It had uh, a series of kind of sultanates. You had uh, the Nawab of the Karnatic, who was uh, one kind of player in the space. You had a whole bunch of southern kings, uh, rajas in Travancore and, and so on. And you had sort of the big heavyweights in, in the subcontinent, the Mughal Empire, which, like the Ottomans, was crumbling slowly for hundreds of years. So the Marathas were one uh, other player that were there, the big power. Um, and this is 1780, right? That's right. So the British have been around in India for what, 200 odd years in some form? Correct. I think the Madras Fort, the Fort St. George, I think, Correct. was set up, what, 1600 something. Th that's right. So uh, they would have had presence as a trading partner uh, for, you know, quite a while uh, up until then. But what we've got in terms of military adventurism, we can mark at 1757, which is the Battle of Plassey. 
Right. Um, and that's where we can really begin to see British East India Company domination over the subcontinent. Uh, many British historians mark that, you know, the loss uh, at the Battle of Plassey as the gain for empire, as the beginnings of empire. But for us, especially now and in the current times that we live in, it's important to separate out the East India Company moment from the British Crown moment, from the colonial moment. You know, all of those are quite distinct uh, spaces. Right. No, and it's funny. People talk about powerful multinational corporations in modern context, you know, naming names. But the most powerful uh, multinational corporation ever is the East India Company. Absolutely right. I mean, the joint stock company, when it was put together, was uh, supposed to be this, you know, benign sort of trading enterprise. But it created such a whole lot of instability in various parts of the world as just the entity of a joint stock. So France had tried it and their company went bankrupt fairly quickly. Um, the Dutch tried it and their successes were much more in Southeast Asia, Indonesia and so on. And the most successful one we know of is the British East India Company, um, which had a free run for a long time. And uh, especially in the period that I'm looking at, was responsible for many uh, sovereign debt crises. And is the modern equivalent of a kind of Wall Street banker going, you know, uh, out of control. So causing a big financial crisis that then destabilizes a particular region, you know, that then creates more and more instabilities. So for me, that's a really interesting parallel to draw. And how was Mysore as a player? Because in my head, Mysore is big as the zoo to the Infosys campus. <laughs> so how was Mysore as a player? Then? Well, it was a pretty big uh, kingdom. Uh, it was punching above its weight for sure. Um, I think if you have to make sense of it, you have to redraw the maps. The modern map is the one that really sticks in our head. We draw the Karnataka state borders almost immediately. But what you have to go back to is a kind of a, a, a section of um, of South India where if you look at Mysore as the center or more specifically Shiringapatna, you can actually go right from the from coast to coast at one point. So the kingdom expanded and contracted, obviously. Um, and it was really at its height at the end of the second Anglo-Mysore War. Um, by the third Anglo-Mysore War, it was pretty much halved. And by the fourth, it had almost been entirely encircled. So that's another interesting sort of strategic element that I was very, very curious about because that's an example of encirclement in its you know classical sense. In the modern sense, we talk about encirclement and we have all these anxieties. But there you could really see it happen, how a state completely lost access to the coast and was eventually sort of swallowed by uh, surrounding states. Okay, so you have... Um the forces of Mysore under Hyder Ali and Tipu fighting the British. You have other forces in the uh, in South India. Uh, but what was war like? So clearly the Mysore um, army used the rockets. But in what context were the rockets used? So this is where my research has been really, really exciting. We have images of uh, gunpowder battles of, you know, big armies, square armies facing off each other. The rockets occur at a very, very interesting moment. So warfare was changing. You know, there was a was a strategic uh, a flux at that time. Uh, European discipline, which is the idea of a massed uh, infantry formation, was just beginning to really take off. You know, and a lot of the narratives we get now of uh, well-trained European soldiers, disciplined, basically decimating much larger forces, that myth begins at this particular moment. But there's a small rupture in the myth, and you see it in the way Mysore was actually fighting these battles. Mysore cavalry at that point in time was one of the best paid uh, forces uh, probably in the world, but definitely in South India. Uh, they were able to move very, very rapidly across uh, the Deccan. 
I, I don't want to make it too abstract, but if you travel around the region, you can see the terrain and it's very scrubby. There's a lot of undulating kind of plains and then suddenly there are these giant monoliths. Big old monoliths. So if you just drive outside Bangalore to Ramnagaram, you'll have all these flat kind of agriculture lands. Suddenly, Anegundi will be like a giant towering kind of feature. So the Deccan has these really, really interesting uh, geographical features, which were very amenable to Mysorean kind of warfare, which was very rapid cavalry movement. But here's the interesting bit with these extremely shocking at the time rocket attacks. Um, my specific research has really looked at rocket usage within a particular campaign. So we know rockets have been around and we know they had been used. Uh, we know they had been used for signaling, for example. We also know By that, the Indian kingdoms. Yes. So we know that they had been used in the Battle of Plassey as bombardment. Uh, we have uh, documents or we have little bits of painting where you see, you know, soldiers on horseback with a rocket kind of attached to their spear. So we know that there's some kind of uh, propulsion that they were using to just maybe, you know, throw a spear further than you would normally do. You would ignite a uh, rocket and set off like a flare. It was like the equivalent of that. But for the first time in Mysore, in this particular moment, we see the transition towards something a little different. Walk us through one battle where uh, this was used. So it's really interesting. So one of the seminal battles is a battle fought in 1780 in a place called Polilur. So that's the Battle of Polilur. It's very famous because it's commemorated in a giant mural, which you can find it uh, in Darya Daulat Bagh even to this day. In that battle, a British um, regiment um, commanded by a guy called Colonel William Bailey was making its way from um, Guntur all the way south and was headed towards uh, Kanjipuram. Uh, the politics of that is quite interesting because there was another general guy called uh, Munro. Uh, there was a, a, a soldier who was called Munro and uh, the belief was that they should converge at Madras. But for whatever reasons, they were given orders to go to Kanjipuram instead. Now, this was a bad idea because Arkot, which is a few kilometers to the west, was being sieged by um, Tipu Sultan and Hyder Ali. So you have this massive Mysore cavalry, probably the largest force ever assembled in South India, about 80,000 people at least, sieging this big capital city of Arcot. And then you have an order to say, go towards those guys and don't come towards the safety of Fort St. George. Um, as it happens, the colonel was caught completely off position and he was smacked into by a whole bunch of Hyder's um, cavalry. Uh the battle is very well documented because it was a it was a very bad defeat for the British, and uh, as good British historians, they tend to downplay it very very uh, you know in the in in a wonderful way they downplayed and they play up the third and the fourth Anglo Mysore was where they were far more successful, but for us in India, this is an interesting moment because again you see a experimental technology sort of appearing. Um, the British forces were marching and they would be constantly harassed by cavalry. Uh, they would be cannonaded and the cannonades would basically consist of uh, a mixture of artillery, which is howitzers and cannons. And uh, I was surprised to see the word howitzer there until I realized that howitzer is just a smaller cannon that blobs a shell as opposed to a cannon which is supposed to smash through battlements, you know. So if you wanted to punch a hole through a fort, you'd use a cannon. But if you wanted to drop a big pile of, uh, uh, you know, lead on a bunch of soldiers, you'd use a howitzer. Okay. So, and there are different gradations, there are like, you know, 15 inch, there's a whole set of, um, you know, bores for the howitzers. 
in that suddenly rockets appear and they appear in second anglo meso in a really fantastic way they are horse mounted so they're not like a uh, big you know uh, uh, siege like they're not part of a siege fortification where you've got a embattlement and then you're you know on top of that you're launching stuff that happens in the fourth anglo meso but in second you basically have these metal canisters coming at you from about a kilometer or 2 kilometers away okay and suddenly landing in your midst and creating complete chaos do they explode when they land so it's non standard so okay. there was no like one kind of standard gauge of rockets there were different kinds and each of them had different uh, sort of effects um i'll go from the top down so there were broader psychological effects which was they were bloody scary so you had uh, big piles of metal like falling on you what size were they so Are the rockets were uh, made of like two parts so they had a canister and they had a stick which is pretty much a diwali rocket if you really mm. think about it but these rockets were metal and uh, the canister which is where the solid propellant was which was a kind of gunpowder mixture that was about uh, maybe a foot and a half again it's non standard okay we've found samples which are smaller we found samples which are bigger we found excellent samples with great craftsmanship which are about uh, one and a half feet long as far as the canister is concerned but the stabilizing stick one of the crazy improvisations was they put a sword instead of a stick okay now the belief really is that when the rockets were fired uh, at the initial launch the stabilizing stick would stabilize the rocket but because of the uh, weight of the blade at the latter end of their trajectory when the burn had finished they became unstable and they would do unpredictable things okay now i'm very skeptical about the physics of it and one of our really interesting ideas is to actually test it and fire it so we're okay. we're, we're working on that yeah <laughs> so be patient um, so you're working on a flying sword that will turn around a lot when it's about to land <laughs> yeah basically i am lobbing uh, you know about a 2 kg piece of metal that can cut you a uh, kilometer up in the air and hope <laughs> like you where you're testing this the general vicinity <laughs> of this yeah, yeah. so the the sword rocket was the most fearsome one and that's that's a psychological effect right that's uh, i'm lobbing swords at you from a kilometer and a half away um the british of course have a very british response the officers say well this is not really uh, going to affect us because our lines are not very deep and so that when the rockets uh, within the position of the launch is known we can easily avoid them the subalterns the guys who actually have to face the heat have a different story altogether when they say this is a really awful thing that's coming at us burning causing lacerations causing cuts and wounds we have eyewitness accounts of it killing three people and so on you know in the battle now these are not big you know weapons of mass destruction these are irritants in the battlefield but what they do do is give you this very interesting psychological advantage because they scare the enemy and the british were scared at that particular point in time and as any good military they eventually adapted but at that particular moment you had a very very interesting uh, confrontation at the battle of polylor so what was the range a kilometer so uh, a kilometer and a half to 2 is a good estimate um again there have been studies to you know estimate the range but uh, i think that's a fairly good uh, figure there may have been other rockets with a smaller size that would have had a less of a performance but on the outer limit we know in 1799 at the siege of shirangapatna that rockets were fired at many locations and based on that we've calculated this 1.5 to 2 km uh, range so i'm just wondering uh, there's so much that's being said about you know uh, 
countries like India were colonized because Europe was more uh, superior in technology and military capabilities and all that. So where did Mysore get their rockets? How did this innovation come about? In Mysore. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the interesting part about it. It's an indigenous technology. There certainly were inputs from French mercenaries in the pay of Tipu Sultan. Many of the cannons that were being cast in Mysore had a sort of French component to them because, you know, much of the ammunition was being imported uh, from France. But certainly the technology was completely uh, indigenous. It was a local bunch of people who kind of put it together. Um, We know that the Industrial Revolution would kick on uh, a bit later and so that's when the balance of power really, really changes, you know, and many of the South Indian kingdoms and definitely even in Southeast Asia and all of that whole colonial track, kingdom after kingdom is just being toppled by these these uh, European powers who then become very, very uh, militarily uh, superior. But the period that I'm very, very interested in is that cusp is 1780 to 1784, where India and China would have been probably, the, I mean, what we have now, actually, some of the largest economies in the world um, producing um a lot of lot of raw material we know for example that in south india at the time metal production was was extremely good and the quality of metal was extremely high uh, even to the fact that it was export material uh, out through merchant networks out to the middle east um and so when we lament now that our core skill of metallurgy in current india is is weak it's again a surprising thing because we have a long history of it and we really ought to, you know, recollect what about that aspect actually worked, you know. Of course, you can't replicate those methods, but to remember those things is really quite an interesting uh, idea. So what was the tipping point? I mean, if Mysore had these rockets, how come the, the next few wars, I think they lost, right? So so this is a very interesting question. Now, rockets in themselves will not win you anything. So one of the interesting insights to bring here is that a weapon system is only meaningful within a strategic context. The weapon itself does nothing. <laughs> so in Second Anglo-Mysore, you had a very, very strong Mysore. It had access to both coastlines. Um, it had a very, very well-paid uh, military, one of the happiest militaries uh, in South India. Napoleon was still in power in France. Yeah, he is still. He was actually, in 1784, he would have just been a young artillery officer going okay. through his training. He was. Okay. He would have not yet. At the end of Second Anglo-Mysore, which is about 1784, he would have been in his artillery training, you know, uh, okay. in, in the academy in, in France. So he would not yet have been the Napoleon who begins to deliver victory after victory after victory um and so the tipping point really is that uh, well this is the nationalist history coming straight back it's that indian princes were being played one against the other and the british with the uh, superior diplomatic skills at that point in time were able to create a lot of interesting alliance formations and eventually mysore found itself uh, you know an alliance that it just simply could not beat it it faced not only the nizam but also the marathas uh, the nizam of hyderabad and so no amount of firepower at that point in time would have helped you with all the resources of the states, you know, directed against Mysore. So that really was the uh, the tipping point. And uh, I would say that um, by, th- I mean, third Anglo-Mysore, when, the, when, when interestingly in Bangalore, 1791 is where Cornwallis comes in and there's a big fight in Bangalore. And, and this uh, is Lord Cornwallis, the governor general. Yes. And he comes in and he has a big old fight in Bangalore. And one of the first maps of Bangalore is from that campaign. So the map of the Kote and the Pete and the, you know, the early, you know, what was already Kempegowda's fort, 
that map is a very interesting document that emerges out of this campaign. It's a recon map from a guy who's saying, how do we destroy, how do we take uh, Bangalore? Yeah. Right. And I mean, this is why I like that, you know, you have this link between Bangalore and uh, Washington, D.C. in the United States, right? Lord, uh, Cornwallis is this guy who lost. Uh, America got its independence from uh, Britain and he was the losing general. And uh, he suffers humiliation back home. He's sent, he comes to India to redeem himself, right? And to make his name again. And in fact, he commissions all those painters and uh, so on, you know, to paint Savandurga and other places around Bangalore because he wants to document his victory. Yep, yep. I mean, this was a typical strategy. And uh, many times people who got their uh, butts handed to them in other parts of the world made up for it back in India. So many times you would have people coming here to redeem themselves. But here's another interesting reverse story which concerns rockets. Arthur Wellesley in the third Anglo-Mysore war gets his uh, first taste of shell shock uh, with rockets. And uh, he eventually is so spooked by these rockets that hit him uh, that he kind of retires from the battle, which uh, is a polite way of saying he basically loses it. Um, But later on, he sort of marshals his uh, brains together again and uh, goes on to, guess what, beat Napoleon at uh, Waterloo. So and he was the governor general of Mysore in between in, independent in, Mysore correct not independent but uh, Mysore freed from uh, you know all the these governor control. generals have very checkered histories you know so many of them have these crazy moments so definitely you know looking into their histories as not just uh, a guy who's sitting in an office but a guy with a agenda a guy with a history a guy with a personal angst even you know those become very very interesting stories that make the history a little more you know uh, exciting and again especially in the current times impeachment was a big thing because east india company was ridiculously corrupt uh, and so many of the governor generals were political appointees who depending on the way the politics played out eventually got hauled up for excesses and for uh, crimes committed you know while overseas so warren hastings um, who was involved in the second anglo war he gets uh, pulled up, uh, you know, uh, for uh, his actions. And so you have a very, very interesting checkered kind of uh, history that's far different from a very clean and dry, um, self-created image of a governor general, you know, victorious in his own moment. So if you look at the backstory, it's quite an interesting set of (laughs) digressions. Okay, so let's get back to the rockets. Who made them? I mean, so you've been doing research on the rockets. Tell us about various angles of the research. Who made them? Uh, how well were they used? What happened after? So that's a really interesting question. Um, it comes back to the notions of authorship and ownership. We don't know. We can't place it to a single person. We can certainly link it to guilds of craftspeople who were operating in Mysore at the time. Um, we have, through our research, which is a very again a very uh, multidisciplinary kind of research, surmise that there is probably a linkage between the people who painted the mural at the Battle of Polilur and people who are involved in the campaign. So we know that the way the painting was painted showed that there was a real sense of how the battle actually took place. Which means that we have to kind of put aside our disciplinary or our uh, caste-based or even our labor, the way we divide labor. There was actually a kind of cross-pollination that was happening. This sounds like an early version of the military-industrial complex. It is, it is. (laughs) And Tipu was very good at it. And he was a modernizer. So eventually, of course, after the period that I'm really looking at, he sets up these taramandal pates, which are these, uh, or in, in, they call kharkanes, right? In Karna, kharkane is like factory. But 
uh, he sets up these kind of uh, factory modes of production. So for the more, um, sorry, I, I don't want to say Marxist, but <laughs> I think there's a transition that happens from a artisanal and a guild-based system towards a more pre-modern industrial system. And that's a really interesting uh, feature of, of Mysore. So who made these rockets? We know they were guilds. We know there were different components that were involved in it. We know there was gunpowder and phosphorus and saltpeter that was involved. We know there was metal casting, metallurgy involved. And we certainly know there was somebody assembling it and testing it. Um, and so we have not been able to pinpoint a genius inventor, which is a, tr a bit of a tragedy because the British are able to do that because their innovator is an individual, a guy called William Congreve. Right. You know, the Congreve rockets. The Congreve rockets, exactly. Whereas the sort of unknown inventor of the Mysore rockets will always remain unknown because we will never know that one genius who put it all together. Okay, so we'll come back to Mysore, but what's the link now between the Mysore rockets and the Congreve rockets? So, because the British had such an awful experience with the rockets uh, through the whole campaigns in Mysore, and because for the first time it had strategic effects, they were creating outcomes in battles, the British thought, hey, we better figure out what's going on over here. Um, at the siege of Sri Rangapatna, which was 1799, uh, it's a very famous moment because that's the moment where Tipu charges out into battle and is shot dead in, in Sri Rangapatna. Very unusual for a king to die in battle. And a great rallying moment for the nationalist uh, movement. Um, but um, at that moment, the British realize, you know, we have all these rockets, we need to figure out what they're about. So at the siege of Sri Rangapatna, many samples are taken and they are taken uh, to England and a gentleman by the name of William Congreve is based at the Royal Artillery in Bullich. And he begins a process of reverse engineering the rockets. Uh, it's basically, you know, like, uh, it is reverse engineering. You're getting a technology, you're not quite sure how it works, but then you're beginning to develop it. It takes him about five years, uh, 1799 till about 1805. We know that they were used in battles in 1805. But he sees them more as uh, naval bombardment and he doesn't use them the way the Mysoreans actually use them. Also, at that time, the Newton method, Newtonian science was in force. So his ability to apply rational uh, scientific methods to develop the rockets was much, much, much more superior. And so within a very short time, you have a qualitative leap up from these very improvisational, very non-standardized kind of rockets that could do a variety of things on the battlefield to what we know is the modern rocket, a, a, few, a kind of a canister with a warhead with a kind of a, a, a stick. You know, if you look at the pictures, which you can easily find online, you'll immediately see all the, the rationality that actually comes in. So he's the guy who begins to develop the rockets. And here's another amazing story. The Congre rocket is used in a naval battle and it's used in a campaign in America. And a poet, William Scott Brown, sees these rockets being fired and is so moved, he writes a poem. And that poem is called The Star-Spangled Banner, which eventually <laughs> becomes the American national anthem. And there is a line in the national anthem which says, the rocket's red glare. And he's referring to the Congreve rocket. Uh, two little alterations there. Of course, he's going for the alliteration, the rocket's red glare, <laughs> but they were probably not red. They were probably blue because they were phosphorus based. Maybe, we're not, we're not sure yet. Uh, but secondly, uh, that's not exactly a Congreve rocket. It's 
probably also a Mysore rocket because that's the original kind of uh, source material for it. So we can make a very fun claim saying that actually there's a very interesting linkage across India, the UK and America at that particular moment. Crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, I still can't have my head It's really that. crazy. You should, yeah. it's, 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 it's insane. These connections are crazy. But Ram, what does this mean for military technology today? I mean, you, you're saying that we had the, this indigenous technology uh, back in the 1700s. So what does that mean for us today? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> because the systems are different, the conditions are different, the strategic environment is very different. If there is something to learn, it would probably be just principles. And it mostly will help us from an identity kind of standpoint, understanding where our achievements were. Certainly, it will put to rest some really silly issues as far as claims about history are concerned. And I think the uh, the problem with certain kinds of political rhetoric is that they obfuscate, you know, pressing issues. I'm sure at Takshashila, you guys have argued very, very, uh, you know, ardently for a proper defense industrial base for a country. I mean, there's no doubt that that needs to happen. And certainly India is a very curious democracy, which has such a disconnect between its civilian and military components. So, uh, I would love to make leaps of association, you know, connecting one to the other. But I'm afraid there will just be leaps of association. Uh, I liked what you <laughs> said about uh, these rockets being invented just before Newtonian mechanics came into being. Uh, because there were lots of things happening in India, which were sort of precursors. Like you had the Kerala School of Mathematics, uh, maybe 100 years before uh, Newton, thereabouts. Uh, which came up with their own versions of the Taylor series and other things which were precursors to uh, calculus. Right? And so you didn't have calculus formally and you didn't have the notations which Leibniz came out with. But you had all these things that were very much the base of differentiation and integration. And here you have a rocket which you can, of course, design really well using Newtonian mechanics. Uh, rockets, by the way, make for very interesting physics problems in class 12. Absolutely. Struggled <laughs> and enjoyed with them because the, the, the mass of the rocket changes over time, <laughs> right? So uh, you have a differential in that too. Uh, so so I found that really interesting. Yeah, right? And that's the question. I mean, yes, the Industrial Revolution, uh, the Enlightenment na -na -na, happened in the West, but they could have been situated somewhere else. Right, yeah. uh, flowerings can happen in Florence or in Faridabad. Right? Absolutely, I mean co covariance and contingency. These are the sort of kind of big <laughs> social sciencey things I'll dump in there. That in covariance, there's similar ideas, but they can occur at different times in different places. And contingency is the the trickier one because two systems completely identical in two different situations can co-evolve in completely different different ways. So many times your social science of your problem of correlation versus causation, in history it's a real dilemma. Because what caused what, you know? You know, did the war cause an outcome or did an outcome cause a war? You know, you will never be able to really uh, tell. So um, uh, getting back to Mysore, um, doing this kind of research must be hard, right? And extra hard in India. So tell us a little about how you went about doing that finding working with archaeologists or i don't know people who do epigraphy i don't know what so this is a comedy of errors so i am a playwright <laughs> at the very core of oh it. yeah we forgot you're doing all of this thing <laughs> you're doing a play right yeah yeah so it's a play all of this started What's the name of the play? play the play is called vanguard uh, the story of the mysore rockets 
and um, all of this craziness really began uh, as um, as my search as a playwright. Um, why would a playwright uh, go to this uh, set of extremes? It's a really funny story, and I think I just need to rewind a little bit tell you how I got to where I got to. So in 2011, I was a starving scholarship student in SOAS. So that's typically where uh, you go and um, and, on, and there's a place called a junior common room where everybody lands up. LSC, Burbeck, all of these guys. Saturday night, uh, Friday night actually, the party's at SOAS. So we were all there and suddenly I saw an ad for a Tipu Sultan website in the junior common room in London on a Friday night in 2011. And I'm like, what is going on? How is it that I have traveled, you know, all the way to London and, you know, this ad at this moment has showed up. So I responded to the ad and what eventually happened was I met somebody who is an art collector who is based in the UK and owns what is basically a preparatory copy for the Battle of Polylore. Uh, I didn't believe it at first because the Battle of Polylore mural is 32 feet by 7 feet. So that's a gigantic gigantic painting that he has but he does have it and it was it was revealed once in 1999 in Scotland in a in a showing uh, and it remains in an undisclosed location so we don't have in, a public image of this we do we do the thing is it's okay here's the interesting bit about it so in Darya Daulat Bagh uh, there is a mural which has the painting of the Battle of Polylur. This is in Srirangapatna. In Srirangapatna, just nearby, there's a there's a kind of a little garden area which Tipu commissioned at the end of uh, the, his victory. So the place is called Darya Daulat Bagh and it's a kind of a proto Lal Bagh actually when you think about it. A beautiful garden and so on. And there is a mural painted over there. Now the guys who painted that mural also made a copy of it. And that copy has disappeared and has gone off and has ended up in the UK somewhere. The mural has certain distortions and alterations to it. And so it becomes very interesting to see what is there in that painting and what is actually uh, has been allowed to weather the course of time and had alterations and distortions. So distortions, distortions. you mean by Tipu or by the British after Tipu? All of those. So by Tipu is unlikely because he commissioned it, but definitely by Tipu's detractors. Uh, and those would be the British and also other other uh, local kings who would have had some, you know, uh, incentive to actually downplay his his victories. Um, we know, for example, a lot of the artwork in Srirangapatna was actually graffiti. And it was actually whitewashed when Cornwallis uh, walks in. Uh, and oh, and it's it's Yeah, and Tipu was, a, was actually very, very <laughs> adept at this lampooning and satirical kind of uh, war. It was a psychological war as well. So he would commission artists to make fun of the British. And you then, have the uh, Tipu's tiger, right? Yeah, and so, so the tiger... automaton the, where you have a tiger clawing at a... Very famous. Red coat. Very famous. Oh, I, sitting I don't in, even know what this is. It's a big wooden mechanical automaton. Okay, of a tiger mauling a British soldier. So it sits and in the VNA in London, and any Indian tourist who goes there goes like, "Oh my God!" And any British person who goes there says, "Oh my God!" Because <laughs> here's a you know a big tiger mauling what is obviously a British soldier. And the, uh, it also had something to turn and produce some it's music. Music, yeah, definitely. The French had a little bit of something to do with constructing it, but uh, as an artifact, it's amazing, and it's one of those touristic sites that you go to and see the the you know automatic tiger in the VNA. Okay, but back to the painting. <laughs> So, so the the painting actually becomes a very interesting document about history, uh, its narrative, 
and so as a playwright i was interested in narrative and i was interested in this particular moment and i just began to research it and i found out that one of the contributory causes towards the defeat of the british at the battle of pollur was that a rocket had ignited um, their ammunition and for some reason that was not shown anywhere in the painting and i began to wonder okay what's what's going on over here so i began to research the rockets more and more and more in 2013 I was able to uh, win a grant um with uh, from the Charles Wallace Trust and my partner and I who been researching this project Malika uh she and I went to the British Library in London and we began to look through the archives now even at that time my intention was okay I'm doing a play um maybe I'm taking my research a bit seriously as a playwright because I'm actually looking at archival material but that's not very very uncommon suddenly I realized wait a minute I'm consulting primary sources and i'm not just consulting primary sources i'm consulting primary sources that have not been written about and so i'm looking at the documents of the second anglo mysore war and i'm seeing accounts from the soldiers who fought in the campaign i'm seeing diary records of uh, you know various uh, noblemen who eventually you know left their records i'm seeing anonymous records of the battles and i'm logging all the instances of rocket usage because hey i'm writing a play about rockets and then suddenly and malika is there and she's looking at the women of the time because of course uh, you know history is conveniently written by white males and so you know all the women seem to disappear in the narratives but obviously they were women there so she was looking at definitely some of those aspects and she was researching a lot of the texturing the kind of uh, fabrics that were in use and suddenly i realized wait a minute these are not recorded and then i went to wikipedia and i'm like wait these are not recorded and so suddenly i realized actually i had called out primary information which was um undocumented rocket usage in the second anglo mysore war based on primary research material now as a playwright that's a really bad place to be <laughs> <laughs> and i said no keep going keep going so i wrote the play and i wrote a really long play which was really dull full of facts and dates and places and all my theater friends are going Why is this play so slow? And I realized it must be very inexpensive to produce <laughs> historical play rich with detail. Right? The complete, and rockets, spinning swords, <laughs> completely the reverse. All of my theater friends are going. You are going to be spending so much money on this production; it's never going to take off. But I went ahead with it, and I wrote the play. And then it was a really painful realization. But I was like trying to write history and a play at the same time. it was a really ridiculous discovery and i said look ram you found actually like historical material and you're trying to shove it into a play because nobody has ever documented that history otherwise normal playwright just go pick up a novel and adapt it or look you know base their uh, play on some aspect of history which is unexplored you know but suddenly i was in this real predicament so then i had to split my energies and say you know what this actually deserves to be written up as proper history and so as a playwright i've sort of wandered into anthropology wandered into ir and now i've ended up you know in history uh and i think it's a, it's a crazy journey i didn't i would never imagine i would do this and not that i would i would not plan it at all <laughs> nobody i wish this on nobody but eventually we're in a place where we're seeing a really beautiful story come together a very uh, underreported story and for me narrative is playable in all of these formats in the historical narrative which is has a very different logic which now i'm able to separate out and explore in one way but also the dramatic narrative where we're able to use psychological elements emotional elements to fill the gaps that history will never be able to actually uh, fill 
So very early on, one of my professors put me onto a guy called Simon Sharma, who wrote this really lovely account of the French Revolution. And he's often, he's written one book, which is very controversial, which really played with this gap between history and fiction. It's not historical fiction. It's not history either. It's somewhere in between. And so that became an interesting space for me uh, to enter. Okay. Uh, thanks, Ram. That was uh, excellent. Uh, before we sort of wind up, I thought we'll spend maybe a few minutes talking about the lives of soldiers in India at that point, British, Indian, uh, and uh, otherwise. Uh, like, I have read some accounts. Um, so, Arthur Wellesley, when he becomes the governor of Mysore, uh, which is a position that he gets because his brother is uh, Lord Marquis, I think Marquis Wellesley, uh, the Governor General of India. So ah. he gets a... <coughs> nepotism. Yeah, nepotism quota. <laughs> and, uh, but he is this 25, 26-year-old guy who is quite sharp and there's a long record of public letters that he sends to other officials and so on. And one of the things I found interesting was all army movement depended on bullocks and bullock carts. So he spends half his letters trying to manage the supply of bullock carts. Tries to get them from Coimbatore and move them to Srirangapatna, get them from Calicut up the ghats to Huriur or somewhere else. And that's half his uh, problem. Very, very nicely pointed out. Yeah, the British supply chain was uh, the tail, what normally we would call a tooth-to-tail ratio. Their tail was really, really long. And bullock carts made a big, you know, uh, proportion of that. Um, what you basically had in Second Anglo Mysore was a very agile, very quick Mysore with a lot of horses and the local knowledge of the terrain. And the British had a sort of semi-expeditionary force based in Madras and the presidencies and kind of foraying out into other parts of the country. And so they were really, really reliant on these bullock carts. Uh, initially in 2nd AM, the British were very infantry heavy and they were always caught off and they were really, uh, you know, kicked around quite a bit in the 2nd anglo Mysore. But they adapted quite rapidly and by 3rd and 4th, you could see changes uh, taking place. Of course, along with geopolitical um, changes. So, bullock carts formed a huge component of the ability to move from place to place, which meant that infantry movement was often quite slow. And many of the diary accounts are just, as you rightly point out, people complaining about lack of bullock carts, inability to get bullock carts, bullock carts getting stuck, and so on. The second thing I saw was the monsoon. Yeah. Right? The, uh, I mean, people in Europe talk about the winter, right? Yeah. So, Napoleon yeah. goes to Russia in the middle of winter, gets screwed, Hitler <laughs> does the same. Yeah. Um, but in India, that was the monsoon. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You have to plan your entire year's campaign around the monsoon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, based on the terrain, you have two issues. One is storms, which suddenly kind of land on you. And you can't fight a gunpowder battle easily in wet conditions. So many times when a storm broke out, the troops would disengage, saying that this is not going to work. We're not going to be able to, you know, work this to our advantage. The second thing is the heat. Because the Mysoreans, and we're local, so we were, I mean, they were really able to adapt to the heat in a way that the British were simply not able to. So their ability to move long distances out in the open, and I've walked around in those areas, is really hot. And so they suffered a lot as far as the ability to move uh, is concerned. Um, one of the very, very interesting moments I picked up, it's a really tiny moment within one of the battles, is where these bullock carts these movements and the rockets all come together in a really interesting sort of way. So the highest form of strategy is deception, right? You want to fool, you want to like take the enemy's mind and you want to get an outcome without really applying force, you know. 
of course you can go into sansu and all of these these things we won't go there but there was a moment in a particular battle where the rockets were used to create a kind of a scare a huge bullock cart chain was moving under a major i'll save the details for the play this is actually now like a small big banner a <laughs> small banner ad for the play but an officer was moving at the head of a column and suddenly his rear was attacked by uh, rockets and uh, and musketmen he at that moment because of the shock of the attack calculated this is the entire army because typically the rockets would hit and then you'd have the main force of the army coming right after you so you the rockets were almost like a advance you know a vanguard that would come and smack into you and then following that would be all the cavalry in this instance the the guy miscalculated and it was only a small uh, diversionary force that hit him and he thought it was the entire main force so he abandons all the bullock carts and he runs for it and he drops all of his baggage bag everything and charges and makes for um, his camp so for me and eventually of course it's not a very massive strategic effect that happens but it very very badly slows down the british ability to move in the terrain because the bullock carts that he's tasked to defend are full of rice thousands of kgs of rice because it's provisions and so on so one of the very interesting moments in the play which is based on a very very small historical moment is a is a kind of a high level usage of the rockets not just as a bombardment not just as uh, you know hurting the enemy but psychologically unsettling him and creating a moment of deception where you can create an outcome disproportionate to the effect of what you actually got so in the play the the character who does this takes the rockets up to the next level and it's based on a historical incident which uh, which i can actually which i'm going to write about and document and so the bullock carts the ability of soldiers to move the rockets all kind of come together in this this moment okay thanks uh, so much thanks ram so. <laughs> i look forward to reading research as well as watching your play yeah look look forward as well yeah yeah uh the dates are all tbd <laughs> <laughs> we did a reading we did a reading and the play is done and so um we have like multiple arms of what's going on i have the non fiction going the play going and we're also hopefully going to rebuild and document the rocket as well so those are all parts of it and guess what a theater company is actually you know the the sort of catalyst for all of this to happen <laughs> that's amazing but best of luck with home thanks a bunch thank you for staying with us till the end if you have any questions for ram or either of us hosts write into podcast at thinkpragati.com and we'll answer your question in a future episode tune in to the pragati podcast for more brain fodder as well as extra reading related to the pragati podcast Also check out Pragati Express at express.thinkpragati.com a group blog designed to stimulate your mind. You can subscribe to the Pragati podcast on the IVM podcast app or wherever it is that you get your podcast from. We'll see you next Thursday. The Pragati podcast is an IVM production and if you like our show you can also check out their other shows like TFG Sports Podcast, a show that rounds up all the sports news from the week and keeps you up to date about what's happening in the world of Indian football, cricket and badminton. Tune in to listen to previews, reviews, in-depth analysis and interviews with those making a wave in the world of sports. New episodes out every Monday on ivmpodcast.com, the IVM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. As you can see, We have a podcast listener in his natural habitat. 
Billions of years of evolution have led him to this point. He's on his way to work and listening to podcasts makes his miserable day better. He will now head to work and use all his knowledge to communicate with other colleagues and possibly future mates. You can find more of his species on ivmpodcasts.com. Your one-stop destination where you can check out all the coolest Indian podcasts. Happy listening.